Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to another edition of Kinky Boots. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And this week we are covering Series 1, Episode 16 of The Avengers. It's The Yellow Needle. This was written by Patrick Campbell. It was recorded on the 8th of June 1961 for transmission on the 10th of June 1961 at 8.50. And this was broadcast in the ABC North Anglia ATV Southern Time Tees, TV Western and Wales, Ulster, Westwood and Scottish TV regions. It doesn't exist, there's no video, there's a recon on the Studio Canal box set DVDs, there are no production stills, but there are 82 telesnaps and a full script from Barbara Forster's private collection. And that also includes a scene breakdown and a programme budget, which was £3,770, plus £1,380 for an external designer and £150 for the Ampex tape recording. Little snippets. Uh, It has been adapted by Big Finish on their Lost Stories collections, and that's what we're going to be using as a basis for the review this week. Dr. Exton, do you have a pricey for us? I do. And again, this comes from Dave Rogers' Ultimate Avengers book. And it says, The Yellow Needle. So Wilberforce Lungi is in London to negotiate independence for his country, Tenebra. When an attempt is made on his life, his old friend David Keel agrees to help unmask the culprit and suspicion falls upon Lungi's secretary, Jaquetta Brown. Steed, meanwhile, investigates the opposition leader in Tenebra, chief by Shebro. Befriended by Ali, a servant, and Judith, one of Shebro's wives, Steed finds that all the clues lead back to Jaquetta Brown. In London, the woman has substituted a dose of yellow fever bacterium for Lungi's insulin. She is prevented from carrying out her plan by Keel, who in turn is drugged by Brown. Steed's arrival the following morning prevents the woman from administering a second dose of the drug to Keel. So Wilberforce Lungi. Quite a gent, I understand. Hmm. You studied under him, didn't you? I did a year's tropical medicine out there before I went into general practice. He came to see me last night. Did he now? To chat over old times? Eh? No less than the Prime Minister of Tenebra. Really, dear boy, what I don't know about you would fill a book. He's a worried man. Frightened too, I would think. Not for himself, but he's afraid something may stop the signing of this Declaration of Independence next week. And will it? I don't know. It's some time since I was out there, but I do know these people. If they've got as far as taking pot shots at him in London, they're not going to stop there. He's a very tired man and he's living on his nerves. He's also a diabetic, which doesn't help matters. Rosy picture. Well, I don't mind telling you that he's causing me a bit of a migraine. The government's going to be in a pretty mess if anything happens to the old boy just now. I've got to keep him alive until he signs that declaration. After that, they can chase him up Nelson's column for all I care. People normally mellow when they reach your age. Where do you keep your feelings? Now, if this is based, or if the big finished production is based on an original script, the last thing that Ali was in Tenebra was a friend to Steed. Yes. Like I said, the the big finish, they do adapt them fairly closely to the scripts. And they have said that they kept in all the errors, for want of a better word. The point I'm making is that 
the Dave Rogers book may not be the Bible and Oracle that we're taking it for. Well, as we're coming on to, there's a couple in the in the episode to come. The Dave Rogers book, the production stills, doesn't marry up with the script at all. So there are questions raised. This isn't being leveled at Dave Rogers, but there are questions raised uh, when we get to death on the slipway about where the final denouement actually takes place. But we'll get to that in the next episode. Just a couple of other little, little snippets on this. Dr. Mike Yates was the medical advisor for this one, and there was a slight overrun of 30 seconds on the record. Sidney Newman was still standing in on this one as producer uh, because Leonard White was off having an operation, and he complained that one actor continually dried, and that disrupted things. Uh, this was also the first episode shown by Scottish TV, quite a lot later than a lot of the other regions, but TV Cymru and Border and Grampian, they started even later. So, yeah, it was it was rippling out, but as soon as it had rippled out, it started contracting again. So we're sort of reaching the peak here. What did you think of the actual story itself? It was very much a story of two halves. There's Keel's half and there's Steed's half. I thought that Keel's was quite good. Steed's was really quite pointless. The whole trip to Africa is pretty pointless. His cover is immediately blown um, and he doesn't learn anything that we don't already know. Well, my notes at this end say that the plot would have fallen apart completely if Jacquetta had refused a dinner date with Keel. There is some lovely sound design in Africa, but it's basically Steed pissing off on a jolly. Yeah, and as as I say, behaving very much as a colonialist while he's there. even down to the uh, surprise at the fact that they have electricity and air conditioning. The episode's description of Africa is very much of its time. It's all jungle drums and tribalists. Yeah. Now, what we do see here while Stephen is, is in Africa is that he is a dreadful undercover agent. Yes, but how much of that is an affectation? Because we know it's all Steve... affectation. Well, yes, I know, but we know Steve from the later series where he's unashamedly the English gent. And he sort of plays no. on it in, in future series. Are we seeing but the shade st- of that here? Oh, no, we are seeing that here because right at the start, the whole bit about leaving his dog, and this is the one where he turns up and just expects Carol to, to look after his dog. A great Dane, uh, if it's anything like the TV series. It's a bit of an ask. Yeah, and he just expects her to, to run away and get on with it like the good little mem side. <laughs> Yeah, I must admit, if I was in Carol's shoes, I would have been quite pissed off. On the subject of that, I wanted to talk about Jaquetta for a while, because she is the first female character we've seen who is something more than purely a victim or purely decoration. She's a, a subject expert in her own right. She's described as the power behind the throne with Sir Wilberforce. Now, again, of its time, and this is a white expert in Africa, we're giving no agency at all for the for the natives but that's a an early 1960s thing steed in his inimitable way describes her as a fine little filly so ignoring all of this intellectual expertise that she brings to everything it's just oh she looks nice doesn't she and ultimately in terms of plot for as, as strong as she seems and as capable as she seems and as as much of a villain as she seems she ultimately gets manipulated and by the, the male characters in Africa. So she does finally fill the victim role. 
And actually, while we've been talking, I've just realised she isn't the first woman in that kind of position that we've seen. Well, there, there was, was Vera, the... wasn't there, in Girl on the Trapeze? Oh, but, I mean, she was part of the, she was part of the gang. I, I was thinking about the wife in um, in Hunt the Man Down, who was very, very much the one in charge. Mm, true. But I must admit, but, in my head, I'd cast Jaquetta as a black woman. Well, she was played by Margaret Whiting, who's a white woman. Well, there you go. I agree. In a, a modern production, you want somebody like Josette Simon playing it. but Yes, yeah, I agree. Uh, but all the way through the, the story, I, I'd cast her as a black girl. Actually, Keel's date with her is very much of its time. It's very patriarchal. He turns up and he just orders a drink for her without asking what she wants. And it's, oh, thank you. <laughs> she may hate gin, but he's just bought her one, so she gets on with it. When it comes to the waiter saying, are you ready to order? He doesn't think that she might still be thinking about things. It's just, oh, yes, we're ready to order. Let's get on with it. So it's very patriarchal, but of its time. Of its time. That's how it probably would have been. And my final little note is that the word tenebra, the name of the country, is the Latin for tear. As in the lacrimal secretion or the stage. Yes. Yes. Right. I quite enjoyed this one. I think more I for the spectacle than the actual story itself. Although it was, I mean, it was it was quite nice. You knew that there was going to be gradually worse and worse for Sir Wilberforce. And uh, the actual title of it, The Yellow Needle, it, you don't really find out why it's been given that title until pretty much the last scene, I think. And there's, the, the episode ends on a, a cliffhanger. You You assume that he's treated and recovers, but it's not cast iron. But the the vast majority of the plot, you're watching the interplay rather than trying to work out who's actually going to come out best from this. Because there's a lot of subterfuge going on. I just enjoyed this for the sound design, the spectacle, the performances. I didn't actually think there was going to be any sort of resolution, and there wasn't really. I have to say, this is the first time we've heard a truly dreadful performance. Because the hotel security guard is a pure comedy turn. He was awful. Come in. Ah, Porter, if you could put the drinks over there, please. This came for you, ma'am. Oh, a parcel. Thank you. Uh, Just a moment. Do I need to sign for it? No, ma'am. Then thank you once more. That'll be all. What the devil are you doing in there? Delivering the ladies some drinks. It was a a Marty Feldman, Monty Python, croaky old man voice, and it really jarred. Yeah, you see, it's difficult to know how to, to rate this one. We've had a good run of stories. I think the, the Springers I didn't particularly enjoy, but the Frighteners was excellent. And quite a few of the, the more recent ones before that, they've been really good. One for the Mortuary I loved. Dance with Death was pretty good. They've got into the stride with the set of characters. And Steed in particular is now being moulded into, you can see the glimmerings of where he's going to end up. Absolutely, and it, it's far more entertaining than early stuff like Square Root of Evil or Brought to Book. Agreed entirely, yes. Because, as you said, they found their stride. And this is probably why sort of later productions don't record their first episode first. Uh, yes, and, well, we've seen it with, certainly with Doctor Who's the, the prime example, but it's a much stronger start if you don't record in order, uh, if you do find your feet. We've skipped out alumni again. Who's in this one? Well, there's quite a number of alumni. Michael Barrington, who will appear in another episode of The Avengers and an episode of The New Avengers, was Sir Colin Thackeray in The Seeds of Doom. He also turns up in The Free Willies Department S. 
the champions, Adam Adamant Lives, Mr. Rose, Knight Errant, he was in pretty much everything. Eric Dodson, who played um, the headman in The Visitation, will also play 115 in The Avengers. Dolores Mantes played the regular character of Nina Barry in UFO. Margaret Whiting will turn up in Artemis 81 and Undermined, among other things. And Wolf Morris will turn up in two more episodes of The Avengers. He was Kusang in The Abominable Snowmen and the, um, the play The Creature that it was based on. Uh, he was one of the regulars in The Lost Planet and Return to the Lost Planet. And he was Padma Sambhava in the Doctor Who story The Abominable Snowmen. It was Chris Ong fairly... and Padma Sambhava. No, Kusang. Ah, right. In, in the Nigel Neal play The Creature, which was then made into the Hammer film, The Abominable Snowman. So a completely different story to the Doctor Who story, The Abominable Snowman, even though he appeared in both. I should have remembered that since we watched them both on the same day. Yeah, oh, so quite a few Who alumni tucked away there. But yes, should we give this a score? What are you thinking for this one? Three. Yeah, I'm, I'm cruising in three territory myself, which it places it in that average bracket that I've done with a couple of the earlier ones that, frankly, have been a little bit worse than this. I do like the fact that there's, they're trying to get, even though it's pre-Bond, they're trying to get that Bond-esque flavour into it. And when they do the foreign locations, all right, we've got the benefit of listening to quite a few of these on audio, so the foreign locations are stunning. On an ATV 1961 budget, they probably wouldn't have been overly amazing. Not terrible, just not overly amazing. But that international flavour, I do think, works really well. In general, yes. It, it, it worked well when they went to... Uh, Switzerland. Yeah, Geneva. In, was that one for the mortuary? One for the yes. mortuary, that one, yeah. I think it works less well in this, although very much of its time, because... Steve's attitude is is so colonial, it's not true. Um, which is kind of what you'd expect from the character, but it's a little uncomfortable to listen to. For, it for is, but I'm glad they've not cleaned it up, frankly. Yes, yes, so am I, because we're listening to things that are of their time. And um, as you've said before with the Adam Adamant stuff, they tried to tidy it up and clean it up and bring it forward, and it didn't really work. Whereas taking the direct scripts... Got to set my house off to big finish here, because it's, in the modern day, it's something of a brave move, but I think it works. Yes, and I mean, bear in mind that these big finish adaptations are about 10 years old now, aren't they? Uh, not quite. The further into the run that they got, bear in mind that we're listening to them in broadcast order, but that's not the order that they were released in. So I think it was 2017, maybe in 2018, when the last volumes were released. So they're between sort of five and ten years old at this point, yeah. But even so, to take a you know sixty-year-old script and adapt it verbatim, rather than nip out all the references to cigarettes that they would do now and casual sexism, colonialism, they've kept it all in and they've had a faithful adaptation of the first season. I'm loving the ride. So, how much are you loving it? It's going to be three out of five. Like I said, I enjoyed this one more for the spectacle and the performances and the sound design as ever was beautiful. It wasn't the most satisfying story, but I was definitely entertained by it. Yeah, three out of five. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if it had been purely the London-based Kiel and Jaquetta stuff, and that had been expanded a bit more at the expense of Steve doing his Alan Quartermain thing, <laughs> it may have edged it up to a four, because the, that part of the... Um, the story, I think, worked an awful lot better. But look at it as a whole, and the, the Africa stuff kind of dragged it down a bit. A little, but I will say but this I still much. still enjoyed for, it. Yeah, I will say this much as a last note for the Africa stuff. Steed was not in control out there. He was very definitely being humoured, but he was not in control. Yeah, but that doesn't change his attitude and the way he behaves. No, but absolutely anyway, not. We're, we're looking at this sort of... 50 60 years, years. <laughs> yeah, 60 years in, in the past. And things have changed, which is a good thing. That's how we move forward. And moving forward, next time we will be watching Death on the Slipway. We'll certainly be listening to it because it it's another one that doesn't exist. If you want to join us, listen along, and we'll be back next time with more Kinky Boots goodness. Thank you very much for staying the course with us. See you soon. Bye now. They'll be back. You can depend on it. Kinky Boots featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, with thanks to Studio Canal, Big Finish Productions, and Alan Hayes. Title music was performed by Honor Blackman and Patrick McNee, and the program was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.